This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable today, Mello Kalako. Now, Mello by name, Mello by nature, he's not just a Mello man, he's a meditation teacher with 25 years experience as a certified mindfulness and performance coach. And his results-based work is granted in neuroscience, mindfulness, human behavior, leadership training to help his clients find a level of self-awareness, clarity and focus and ultimately success. Mello cycled, trekked, and traveled over 30,000 kilometers around the planet on his mountain bike. He has traversed Africa, Asia, India, Nepal, Europe, and also North America. And along the way, he had to overcome many obstacles and demanding encounters, including near-death experiences. That is from his lessons on the road that he builds mental endurance and rises above adversity. He now shares that deep experience working with many global Fortune 500 companies, CEOs, managers, directors, corporate executives, as well as sporting professionals, actors, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and individuals that want to be absolutely best at their craft. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Mello. Thank you, Kerwin. Thanks for having me on. Mellow the mo- oh my gosh, mate. After that, I feel like you should float in <laughs> on a little white carpet. After I think that, I have to take you to a practice first just to mellow you out a little <laughs> <Yeah>. bit. <laughs> I did get a little bit excited. I must say, I, I, I have been someone myself who's been interested in you know meditation and mind- mindfulness uh, for quite a few decades now. So you know, this is an exciting conversation for me when I get to speak to someone else who um, you know who loves the discipline and the practice of mindfulness and meditation. But I'm just curious, mate, before we dive into your story, when you're at a, when you're meeting new people, how do you describe what you do? Sure, great question. And probably my least favorite question to be honest because I fucking hate it, mate. <laughs> I hate that question. Exactly. When people ask me more than anything else. So I'd love to share the love. Yeah, exactly. So they typically define you. So normally I don't answer with what I do for work, typically. Normally I'd say yeah, I love to be with my family, I love to travel. So that'd be my normal response. But what I do for work, I usually get two reactions when I give an answer. So I normally say I'm a mindfulness and meditation teacher, I'm a high performance coach. And normally the reaction I get is either one or, one or the other. The first reaction is a glazed overlook, oh, this meditation <laughs> stuff, and I'll go leave and I'll go talk to somebody else. Or the second reaction is, wow, meditation, mindfulness, tell me more, I'm fascinated. So then mm-hmm. I'll go the next layer, obviously, and that would be more around, you know, I teach people how to have self-awareness, resilience training, emotional intelligence. I work with companies and, and how I do that is through um, seminars and workshops. So typically it's a really interesting question. And knowing me, I'd probably say, Instead of me telling you what I do, how about I show you what I do? And I'll take yeah, nice. people through a little bit of a practice and say, okay, let's just do something so people can actually feel it and experience it. Yeah, right. Do you ever, because I get people saying this to me going, oh, meditation. Oh, I tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> exactly. That's like trying to say like you know, Buddhism or, or Zen or whatever. <laughs> I tried. I've done that. It didn't work for me all the time, all the time. And that's, uh, or, I, or I tried to cook and I burnt toast the first time, so I decided never to try it again. Exactly. There's a lot of barriers. There's a lot of barriers. So how did you get to be doing what you do, working at the level that you do? Where does your story begin? I'm going to assume it's uh, embedded in uh, you know, some, some stress and some, some trauma from some different parts of your life where you started to seek a resolution. But when, when you think about your story, where does it start for you? Yeah, when I, when I reflect on it, there's a lot of defining moments, I'd say. So... Many years ago, back 30 or three decades ago, I'd say, um, I'm feeling a bit lost in what I was doing, you know, doing unmeaningful jobs and work and, and not really loving what I was doing. Then I discovered martial arts, actually. That's how I entered through martial arts, through Shaolin Kung Fu and Chen style Tai Chi. And very quickly, I realized that the power of the mind was as important, if not even more important than the, the power mm. and strength of the body. So that led me on this immersive practice of you know, discovering the internal arts and meditation and mindfulness. And then that led me on a journey around the world where I did cycle around the world, as you said, and um, lived in monasteries, lived in temples and just immersed myself in whatever spiritual practice was happening there at the time, whether it was you know, Buddhism or Vipassana or you know, a whole range of TM meditation and just dove really deep into it and just, you know, honed my practice and I still do that right now to this day. I've never missed a day for about 30 years of meditation practice. It's a discipline. I think that discipline came from martial arts. So, And so when you started martial arts and when you started the internal martial arts, and I've got to be honest with you, this is where I can relate to you a lot. Like I did martial arts from the age of about nine Mm, or 10, but I started internal martial arts, I think in my early twenties. 
And it wasn't until I discovered internal martial arts that I was like, holy smokes, there's like a whole nother world. Uh, but at that time, I hadn't identified it as a practice that could be used to, you know, um, calm myself, calm my mind, uh, and even heal trauma. Mm-hmm. But what was the pull for you? You know, were you someone that was just into fight sports and then it was just a natural progression? Or was there aspects of your life that you were trying to reconcile and resolve and deal with that kind of made this a little bit more appealing to you? I think basically just to find more meaning and depth, really, in my life. Yeah, right. To find more purpose. And um, yeah, from that, it's been a natural evolution in progress. I've been actually sharing my knowledge and passion of, of mindfulness and helping people to, to support them through. I work in four psychiatric clinics, you know, so I'm helping people wow. with mental health from anything from you know, simple depression to psychosis to you know, deep depression to anxiety. So I love to support people with that. I also had a period of my life where I was doing personal training so you know mind body sort of medicine in a way but I realized I realized very quickly people weren't coming to me to do push-ups and lunges they were coming to me for emotional support for mental support so I wanted to feel better yeah exactly so it wasn't it was disguised as exercise in many ways yeah so it was disguised as that and I was getting some you know pretty interesting cases coming through and that's where I honed my craft to you know really help and support people with the mindfulness practices and with the self-awareness practices and helping people with you know deep trauma, helping helping myself also and, and discovering myself on a deeper level. And if I can do that and all those lessons that I learned on the road from you know surviving near-death experiences to you know, making decisions to you know living and and traveling abroad there and um, really putting putting myself in situations, I think, where it's been really challenging. I love it when my instincts are challenged. I love it when my instincts are awake mm. and alive and I have to dig deep inside of me to find out what I need. And that's where the meditation and mindfulness can really help me to sort of find that stillness inside of me, to create that space between stimulus and response and then respond mindfully. So, um, yeah, wow. Yeah, it's been an evolution in progress and it's still evolving and I love it. And I it, love it. It yeah. sounds like it always will. I've got a great teacher uh, that I work with. He's also a therapist, somatic therapist and um, and a healer. He And he says, everything's a portal, Cohen. Yeah. And, you know, Buddha even says, teach them the illusion until they're ready for the truth. And, you know, I, 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 gra- I, I, I just grabbed onto that part where he said, you know, I was a personal trainer, but I discovered what people were coming to me was more about how they felt than, you know, how many push-ups that they could do. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I follow a very similar philosophy. Like I'm very big into uh, mindfulness and performance and the psychology and the, the therapeutic aspects of a range of different modalities, but I'm known as the business guy. But one of the reasons that I get disproportionate results with our clients is because, yeah, we work focus on world-class best practice, but it's almost like, okay, I know you want to make the money. So here, here's the money. Come over here. Come, And then they get over here and it's like, okay, now let's focus on everything else except for the money. But as a natural consequence of doing these things, the money naturally starts to flow. Exactly. And it's much like when people go to do personal training, like they'll come to, they think they want to do more push-ups, but you start working on their psychology and then before they know it, you know, they're, yeah. they're starting to live a better life. But I'd love to hear more about your near-death experiences. As someone who's experienced a couple myself, um, I'd love to hear some of those experiences and how they shaped what you do today. Yeah, right. There's a few of them, obviously. And uh, you could imagine traveling through Africa and India and Asia. There's some you know, pretty hairy situations. But probably the first one and probably the defining moment was even before I actually left on my cycling trip. So there was, a, there was five or six of us buddies of mine that wanted to go cycling around the world on our mountain bikes as you do and we had this plan together to actually go around the world and one by one unfortunately they all bailed on me they actually like said no, I'm not coming I'm not coming I'm not coming so it ended up being this solo trip and I'm, I'm glad I did because I learned so much from it but before I even left the actual trip I actually was putting myself in situations to get used to camping in different environments and get used to my equipment and my cook set and my lightweight tent and all that sort of stuff and I was out on, on a trip one day, just a three-day trip on a long weekend. And I was out in a fairly remote area and I was you know, pushing along there and these storm clouds were brewing and there was supposed to be a storm coming in. And I thought, okay, that should be fine. I've got my fancy heavy-duty tent and I've got everything ready to go. It turned out to be a much worse than a storm. It turned out to be like a cyclone-type situation. And before I knew wow. it, I was riding my bike through torrential rain, like horizontal rain and lightning, thunder, all this sort of stuff coming along. And it was getting on dusk. And I was actually seeing big gum trees being uprooted, like huge gum trees in front of me, like uprooted in front of me. Oh, my God, this is not great. So I just kept riding and riding and pushing on through, trying to find a place to camp and uh, set up camp. And then a tree actually hit me. One, one tree actually um, knocked me 
on the side and actually hit my bike, hit my leg, damaged my cook set, damaged my, my panniers, which I had on the back. So it put me in a situation where it was coming on dusk. My cook set was damaged. My tent was damaged. My leg was injured. I was in a bit of a situation of what do I do now? And I thought, okay, and I, the external world around me was chaos. There's you know, trees being felled. There's limbs falling everywhere. Um, it was freezing cold. I was actually looking at my fingers. They were becoming hypothermic. They were turning blue. My lips were turning blue. And I, I thought, okay, I'm going to do a bit of breathing practice here. I remember my Tai Chi master taught me a particular technique to generate heat in the lower belly. So I thought, I'm going to do this practice here. I'm just going to sit here. So I did. I started to sit there. And I was actually doing standing meditation to start with. So I was standing there doing a meditation practice. And I started breathing. And very quickly, I found this quiet place within, found this you know, quiet stillness. Even though around me, the world was chaos, the trees were coming down. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to count my breaths. And I was 100, you know, 1,000. I just kept counting and counting to stay focused on my breath. And I did that. And then eventually, I sat down on the floor and I grabbed, you know, those little... Um, um, those blankets, those emergency blankets, those alcohol, yep. the ones you think yep. you'll never use and think, oh my God, how's that ever going to help me? So I wrapped one of them around me and because I was quite wet and I wrapped one of them around me and I just stayed there in my meditation practice in stillness. And I don't know exactly what happened that night because I must've gone through different states, you know, you know, alpha and theta and dropped into these different states. But I know that I felt totally safe, totally secure, totally in my little sanctuary, no problem at all. And I meditated pretty much from dusk all the way through to dawn, all the way through. So a 12-hour practice pretty much all the way through. And then uh, uh, first thing I heard was a little bird chirping in the morning, a little bird making a little noise. I thought, okay, I'm safe. I'm okay. I opened my eyes and I looked around me. There was trees and limbs everywhere. But that was really the defining point of when I realized that, you know what, you've always got the resources inside of you. If you look within and go inside, it doesn't matter what's going on around you. I believe if I didn't go inside, if I actually you know, ran or fight and flight response, I probably would have died from hypothermia, freezing cold, or got hit by a tree or you know, whatever would have happened to me. So finding that stillness within, and that, you know, that's a real storm I'm talking about here, but obviously in this world we're in now, there's a lot of you know, literal storms that are going on around us and chaos and disorder. And you can always so find that stillness inside of you, always find that safe place inside of you. It's such a beautiful story because it really highlights the importance of discipline. Mm. Um, and I don't mean the discipline to sit there and meditate for 12 hours because I'm going to assume that was off the back of how many years of meditation practice. Yes. And I think this is where sometimes people, you know, and I said to you before, like one of the biggest things I get from people is, oh, I tried meditation. It didn't work. And I said, oh, really? What happened? Oh, my mind's just too busy. And I was like, oh, you were aware of that? Like, yeah. I was like, well, that means it was working. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but a lot of people maybe don't necessarily understand, you know, whether it be meditation or personal development, meditation for the most part is quite easy to do when life is good mm. or it's yeah. easier to learn, even though it's challenging for some people. You know, in personal development, it's easy to be personally developed when it's 28 degrees outside and there's a, you know, 15 knot wind and, yeah. you know, we've got dolphins on the starboard bow. But it's not until we're in the midst of a cyclone that we get to really experience how, how our practices can help us. Yeah. Uh, and that was the perfect example. So I'm going to assume there was a lot of discipline that you had um, laid down, a lot of foundations you had laid down prior to that event. And let's, let's talk about that for a moment because I do hear a lot of people saying, oh, I tried meditation, you know, it didn't work for me. And I know, I know what I say to people when they say that, but what do you say to people when they say, oh, I tried meditation, it didn't work, my mind's just too busy? Yeah, I usually introduce them to short practices first, so something mm. really short and sweet, just, just a simple breath practice, even if it's a 90-second practice. Typically, to be honest, I actually don't use the word meditation to start with. And you know, when I'm working yeah. with corporates and yeah. working with, I don't even use the word mindfulness meditation. I don't put it in any of my marketing materials. I don't put it on my flyers because people have these preconceptions about it. You know, they think it has to be sitting cross-legged and you know, chanting or whatever it is. So I don't use the word meditation. I, I might say, let's go train our attention. You know, let's go focus train. Let's you know refocus or reset. So it changes the frame of it. There's a lot of people actually have these preconceived ideas about meditation and then I get them to feel it. So it's really a feeling thing. So you can talk about it as much as you like. You can talk about meditation and you know, when you get these uh, barriers of people saying, I've tried it, it doesn't work for me, we have to get them to experience it. So I'll take them through a really short practice, like a 90-second breath break where they can actually learn to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, deactivate that stress response in the amygdala and just drop into their breath. 
And typically when you do a slow out breath, you probably know this yourself, when you do a slow out breath, you activate the relaxation response. So they feel the feeling of slowing down. They feel the feeling of actually experiencing a bit of quietness, a bit of stillness. And then the next layer to that is to observe your thoughts. So, you know, if thoughts do pop up, just sort of let them go gently. Or for another thought pops up, let them go gently. Because people typically, when they stop or slow down, they get busier with their mind and that's what stops them. Mm. Oh my God, there's just too much going on up there. I don't like what I see. I don't like what I'm experiencing. So they'll stop it because they don't want to turn towards it. So it's a, it's to, for me, it's just a gentle self-regulation, the ability to actually stop and pause the biggest problem I encounter is people don't give themselves permission to stop. Mm. People don't give themselves permission to pause. And in this world that we're in now, you obviously you know, being the COVID-related world where people are sort of having more time for themselves, a lot of them don't like what they see and they actually mm. stop their busyness around them because yeah. the busyness defines them. And when they stop, the ugliness can sometimes seep up to the surface and it's interesting you know i said you reminded me of stephen kotler and you know in his latest book which i think you you may have even read um the art of impossible he talks about the, the i think it's the six or the seven levels of grit and one of the levels of grit is recovery grit yeah and he talks about the important it's hard because for some people they go oh fuck man i can't stop because when i stop i feel guilty now i can't stop when i stop i feel you know i don't feel worthy i, I and all my stuff comes to the surface so well that, that's hard it's hard to recover yeah and that requires a level of grit it's hard to fucking meditate <laughs> yeah. that's why it requires a level of grit but not just grit in terms of the practice but in terms of grit in terms of the discipline you know because you mentioned something quite interesting there where you know people's minds all of a sudden will start to become quite active and i don't know if you you get this but i have had some people say to me you know my mind starts to become active and i start to find myself you know, judging myself for having an active mind. Oh, I shouldn't have an active mind. I'm, I'm trying to meditate and, oh, I can't believe I'm thinking again. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm messing it up. Like <laughs> when you have people that share those experiences, I know what I say to people, but I'd love to know what do you say to people when they, they say those things? Well, that's exactly what should be happening really. And you're right. They, they should get more thoughts <laughs> going true. on. And it's so get, true because the people say, I got distracted. So that's the point. Exactly. You just got to catch it. Observe it, what's going on there. And exactly. And because then they get more anxious about it. It's not working. It's not working. Yes. Really and then they get anxious about thinking. So they're trying not to think. And then it's just, we can't stop thinking. Our minds, that's what they do. They think just like the eyes see, just like the ears hear. That's what the mind does. It thinks. But it's just about observing your thoughts, observing your thoughts without judgment. And mm. in this you know, situation right now, there's a lot of, negative thoughts there's a lot of what if thoughts you know what if this keeps going what if what if what if and we can get caught up in our thoughts so the the practice of meditation and mindfulness is observing your thoughts you know not giving them too much energy letting them fade away so if they are anxious thoughts turn towards them what is it that's creating that anxiety what is it that's actually doing that so you know to really so sit with those thoughts observe those, those thoughts explore those thoughts yeah lift up the covers and you know have a really good look around and and see if there's anything genuinely there to be afraid of. Yeah, and, and also what I use is actually a simple filter, actually, sometimes. It's a, especially now with what's going on, I, I, I ask people to observe their thoughts and mm -hmm. put them through this really two-step filter process. So if you're having a negative thought or an uncertain thought or an anxious thought and it's starting to occupy your mind, the first question I ask that thought, so you're turning towards your thought, you're asking it a question, is, is it true? Mm. Is it real? Is it a fact? Like, is it so you're observing that? That'll catch 90% of negative thoughts. Normally, it's not true. You've just created this whole scenario or dialogue in your mind. And then, if it sneaks through that, that filter, the second filter I ask it is ask that thought, is it useful? And again, that'll catch the rest because normally it's a, a catastrophizing thought or a worrying thought or something that's just ruminating through your mind. Then I ask it, is it useful? And then the practice is to accept it or let it go or to you know, become present with what you're doing. But that's the first two filter systems. And that will catch 99% of uncertain, anxious, fearful, negative thoughts. Do you use um, breath as an anchor? So when people ask these questions and they, you know, they, they resolve the perspective, do you then bring people back to uh, an observation of the body, of the breath, mm -hmm. of a focal point? Yeah, the breath and the body are the 
two easiest portals, really, that are the easiest yep. portals to access. The great thing about the breath and the body is you have them on you all the time, right? They're all there. <laughs> I didn't leave my breath at home. Yeah. Oh, exactly. So when we can anchor into the breath, and that's why I teach those 90-second practices so they can actually learn to access their breath. They can learn to actually feel it and anchor into their, into their belly, bring the breath down into the body. The breath is there. It's all the time there. So we can actually use it and tap into it. It could be three breaths. It could be four breaths. And once I teach people that, they call me back later and say, oh, Melo, thank you for that, that technique because I was in a situation, you know, my son had a car accident and um, I needed to use my, I needed to do something and they tap into the breath. So the breath is super, super powerful, as I talked about before with that you know, storm um, experience. So, yeah, I definitely teach breath work. That would be the first point of call. And then I also teach different styles of breath work. So it might be a breath that might anchor you and find stillness and calm you. So when you're feeling a bit anxious, or it might mm-hmm. be a breath that might energize energize you for performance it might be something yeah. Yeah, if you want to get energy in the beginning of your day um, to punctuate your day with breath breaks so you can actually have those renewal breaks within the day that's the thing about meditation what you mentioned before is people don't have the discipline because they think it has to be 10 minutes or 20 minutes you know at the end of the day but you can punctuate your day with little practices of meditation little snack meditations and they'll give you a renewal break Mm. Yeah, so if you're feeling scattered, you're at work and you've got too many windows open on your computer and you know, you're a bit frazzled, you don't know where you're focusing on, just stop, pause, do some breath work, close, close 35 of those windows off and go refocus and reset what you're doing again. So we can incorporate the mindfulness practices through the day. So let's just contrast for a section because I know mindfulness gets a lot of airtime, meditation gets a lot of airtime, but I often have people ask me, what's the difference between mindfulness and meditation? Is it the same or is it different? What's your short? Saying the word meditation is like saying the word sport, right? There's like hundreds of different styles of sport. It's like there's, there's fencing, there's basketball, there's football, there's a whole lot. So it's a broad term and mindfulness is an aspect of meditation and mindfulness is and observing, being present, basically, being present with the breath, being present with, with what's going on in the moment. So it's an aspect of meditation. The broad term meditation is, like I said, like saying sport. There's so many practices, as you know, there's Vedic practices, there's TM practices, there's breathing practices, there's chanting practices, there's all sorts of different practices. So meditation is a broader term and mindfulness is an aspect of that. And basically being present with where you are in the moment you know, observing your thoughts. And also mindfulness is also not just the meditation practice itself. There's what's called the non-formal practice. And the non-formal practice is doing all those 10,000 things that you do in the day, but Mm. you do them more mindfully. So you take the practice off the mat. So when you are eating, for example, you're just eating, tasting the flavors, tasting the aromas. When you are cooking, you're just cooking. I often ask in in the seminars that I do, I say, you know, when you're in the shower, you know, washing your hair and you're, you're washing your hair, having a beautiful shower there. Are you in the shower? Or are you thinking, oh, my God, I've got so much to do, making your to-do list? Are you saying, mm, I love my lime and coconut shampoo this morning. It smells so good. Or are, is your mind elsewhere? So you, we train ourselves to be in the moment and enjoy the moment more. So the mindfulness practice can be not just the closing the eyes part. There was one particular mm. monastery that I was at in, in Vietnam, actually, and it was all about that. So basically it was all about, Whatever you were doing, you were doing it more mindfully. So if you were chopping the vegetables, that's all you could do. And you could, it wasn't a silent retreat, but you could only say minimal words. So you, you could talk a little bit and you could only say and talk about the thing that you were doing. So if you were chopping the veggies, you could say, oh, wow, what a beautiful carrot this is today. I love the color of this. And you wow. could talk about that. And when you're, when you're eating, you could just say, you know, talk about the flavors and the aromas. When you were washing the dishes, you could just talk about the temperature on your hands or whatever it was. So it really trained me to enjoy everything more mindfully. And uh, a great, it was hard. It wasn't easy, I must say, because yeah, I bet thinking about so many other things. But once because oftentimes learned, you want to go, oh, something happened to me this morning. Oh, something I need to do this afternoon. And it's like, yeah. well, no, you, it's all about what's happening right now. Yeah, or even talking about the weather or something that's not related <laughs> to what you're doing. 
And, but yeah. it did train me. And then I remember later on, um, months after that, I was up in the Himalaya and traveling up in the Himalaya, camping out and living out there. And I remember washing. It was my turn because there was no you know, access to anything else. And we had to boil the water to actually you know, wash the dishes. And it was my turn to do that. And I remember the beauty and the feeling of washing my hands in warm water while I was washing the dishes and how amazing that felt and how much it was a meditation on its own. I volunteered after that to wash the dishes every night. I thought this feels so good because I'm enjoying it so much. It's a mindfulness practice on its own. Wow. Yeah. You've just explained why I enjoy washing up probably really well. <laughs> <laughs> so we can take yeah. it off the mat basically. And and really you can do these practices through your day. And and this is the thing with, with the, the research says that 47% of the time our mind is elsewhere. It's off task. Mm. So we need to train ourselves to be on task. And the other research says that a, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. So the question is, when you're doing something, but you're thinking about something else, where is the mind going? Mm. Is it thinking about the future? Is it stuck in the past? Is it? And that's where mental health issues come, actually, from not being present with what you're doing. Yeah. So we can train ourselves to be more present. And that's, that's a great practice on its own, really is. Do you think one of the challenges that people have when it comes to learning a, a practice or a discipline like meditation is the realistic expectations of how it's going to go, you know, because I, I think, you know, you make a really good point about, you know, meditation, it's just, it's a la label for sport and there are a hundred or a thousand different sports. But I think sometimes, you know, people go into wanting to run a marathon and they go to run a marathon, but they can only run a hundred meters. Like, well, fuck, you know, I've failed as a marathon runner. So, well, no, you've got to train. Yeah. You know, you've got to continually train and tomorrow it'll be 150 meters and then the next day it'll be 180 meters. And then before you know it, you know, give it six weeks, you might be doing five Ks and then after three months, you know, you might be doing your marathon length. Yeah. But I also think it's really important for people to assess the different sports. Because I know for me personally, I was very blessed. I was brought up in an environment where meditation, my mum was a meditation teacher. She clairvoyant psychic. She, she was right out there. And so I, I was introduced to it in a very early age, but not in a very strong discipline. Yeah. And it wasn't until my early 20s, uh, late teens, I started developing more of a discipline, but it wasn't until my early 20s that I did Vipassana for the first time. Right. And, you know, I, I noticed you mentioned that. And um, for those people playing at home, Vipassana is where it's a silent retreat where you go away for, they say it's 10 days. It's actually 11. Let's be honest. If you look at it based on hours in the, on, uh, <laughs> in, 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 where you are, um, but it's meditation from 4.30 in the morning till 9.30 at night. And yeah, you are breaking. Yeah. throughout the day but there's no looking at anyone else there's no talking to anyone else they're segregating the men and the women and to me that's like the iron man of meditation yeah because it's really fucking difficult and you know what's interesting and you probably know this yourself it's like 20 to 40 percent of people who start a 10-day vipassana will actually not complete it because it's too difficult yeah. and i know for me i thought there was something wrong with me so i went back like six and a half times i did six seven day, nah. six ten and i did a three day and I was just like, man, this because I just thought there's something wrong with me because this is so fucking hard. Why is this so hard? Anyway, I kept on practicing Vipassana and I found it really difficult. And I, and I practiced Vipassana for like 10 years, but it was almost like I was counteracting some of the benefits because I was trying yeah. too hard. I'm ADHD. I should put my hand up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what was amazing is when I got introduced to Vedic meditation, and you probably know Gary Goro. I yeah. was introduced to, um, to Vedic meditation by Gary Goro, and Vedic is the original, you know, transcendental meditation. It's just a brand of Vedic meditation. And then I was introduced to these 20-minute mantra-based meditations versus these hour-long sensory meditations. And all of a sudden, I was like, holy shit. Yeah. I can do this. This is really easy. Yeah. But here's where it got really interesting. I started going from 20 minutes, a sit twice a day, yeah. to 40 minutes, a sit twice a day, to sometimes now I'll sit for two to three hours in the morning. Right. Yeah. Whereas I used to struggle to sit for an hour. And I'd have, you know, for 10 years, it was battle, yeah. you know, doing my one hour of a pasta. Whereas now, and I think that's really important. What have you learned yeah. about? individuals and the different styles when it comes to making sure you pick up the right sport yeah. so you don't have an experience that perhaps makes you think it's not for you? It's a good question. Yeah. And it's not a one size fits all. It's not mm. because everyone enters in a different way. And I've experienced that in the work that I do because I can speak the Eastern languages and I can speak the chakras, meridians and all that, if you like, and I can enter through that way. Or I can also speak the Western clinical scientific mode and for me I just want to put it in the middle and make it accessible to everybody 
So if I'm running a corporate seminar, I need to give them, especially if it's like an engineering firm or an accounting or an insurance company where they're a bit more scientific, analytical thinkers, I need yeah. to give them the science. I need to tell them about the science. I need to tell them that, you know, you activate the prefrontal cortex. I need to put up the brain slides and then I'll enter that way through that. Or if it's somebody else, I might enter another way. There's one, I coach a lot of surgeons at the moment and um, surgeons, obviously, I think now with what's going on, they don't like uncertainty. They don't like things that are not in their place. So, you know, some of these surgeons, one of these surgeons in particular that I coach, he's probably the smartest guy I've ever met. Like he's the sharpest guy. He lectures on robotics. He's a cardiovascular surgeon. So he knows all these things theoretically. Mm. And I can talk about emotional intelligence. I can talk about the practices. He, he probably wrote the book on it. He probably knows you know, all these things. He knows it theoretically, but unless you do the practice, then you won't get the benefits. It's like some of these books behind me. You know, they got all the science in there and they talk about it. It's like the the um, example of running a marathon. You can read all the books you like about running a marathon, but unless you do the practice and the exercise, you you don't move forward. You don't progress. So for me, it's about assessing where they are. And then I'll enter different ways. And there's so many different practices. I'll see what the best thing in my toolkit is for that person. And it might be a breath practice. It might be a moving practice. People with high anxiety, they can't sit still. Like that, it's the worst thing initially. So I'll get them to do some sort of movement, Qigong, um, Tai Chi yeah, sort of practice. Right. So the That's movement, fine. the body helps them to guide their breath down into, them, into themselves. So then they can find stillness eventually. So it's it's not a oh, one size fits all. Yeah, it's not a one That's size great. That's really good. I like that. Meditation apps. Um, you know, and you mentioned we've talked about marathons a couple of times now. And, you know, my perspective on meditation apps is they're a great introduction. You know, they're a great way to introduce you to the practice. But, you know, if you're wanting to run a marathon, you're not going to buy a treadmill and practice, you know, <laughs> running a marathon on a treadmill. But you would get a treadmill to build up a level of um, conditioning that would enable you to then get out on the road without feeling like, you know, you've, you don't have anything. Yes. Um, and I, I feel, and this is just, again, purely my perspective, but, you know, I think with the rise of technology, these meditation apps have become increasingly more popular, especially with technological uh, availability, technological addiction, other forms of addiction. What's your take on apps and where do you think their place is? Yeah, it's a good question because it's a divide, isn't it? Some people use mm. technology a lot. My take is I'm on a few apps, by the way. I'm on an app called Insight Timer, and I actually give that to people that need a guided meditation. My my take on that is they're a bit like a training wheels on a bike. Yes. So you, it's like, okay, you can have the training wheels for a while. It's a pleasant experience because it's easy, and you can ride your bike. You can stay stable. You can stay in the practice. But eventually, you need to take the training wheels off. Eventually, you need to take that, that little guide, even if it's for short times, to sit in stillness by yourself. Because mm -hmm. if somebody's guiding you through the practice all the time, you'll use that, you'll need that all the time. So it, taking the training wheels off the bike is at least less pleasurable experience, right? It's not as nice because you'll fall over a few times and you'll you know, rebalance yourself, but eventually you'll become a better bike rider. So taking the training wheels off your ears, eventually you'll become better at sitting still and better at being with yourself and being with your thoughts. So that's my take on it. And making sure, obviously, because the trouble is with an app, you might listen to a meditation and the meditation finishes and you feel great and then you've got your phone on you. Oh, I'll just quickly check Instagram or Facebook and then you just like... <laughs> just... And you just unravel all the good work that you've done. Exactly. So it's that part. Well, let's talk to some of the science that might be compelling for some people to maybe either, you know, to pick up their practice again or, or even initiate a practice. Mm. Uh, or be initiated into a practice, what are some of the benefits? Because obviously when we look at uh, performance, and you know, one of the reasons I think I've become so heavily ingrained in meditation as a discipline is because I've become acutely aware of the, you know, the consequences when it comes to performance neurologically, emotionally, uh, physically, um, and even when it comes to you know, um, the ability to be able to regulate the different systems in my body. Yeah, It just helps in so many ways. But let's maybe talk to some hard science what's some of the science that you put out there as headlines to go well maybe this is something you need to consider when you consider you know 20 minutes of meditation i've heard some people say you know 20 minute deep practice can be the equivalent of two to three hours of you know rem sleep yeah um yeah 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 what's that, your take 
Yeah, definitely. It's normally people enter meditation for stress, for stress reduction. So that's one of the first best byproducts of it. It helps you to manage stress, the resilience around that. And what that does, it deactivates the amygdala. So the amygdala is a little gland in the back of your brain, in the primitive part of the brain, and that fires up anytime there's a stress response. So it might be your boss, it might be an email, it might be your workload, it might be your demands, it might be what's going on now, the situation, the announcements. So that fires up, that gets stronger the more that you actually pay attention to that so that that becomes more reactive. So you strengthen your amygdala. The great thing about mindfulness, meditation and self-care practices and all these practices, it actually deactivates that. It actually shrinks even. And when that happens, it activates the prefrontal cortex, which is all about emotional regulation, decision-making, planning, problem-solving, logical, analytical thinking, all these things that you need at work and to function and to do the things that you do, that fires up. So that fires up um, when the trouble is, oh, sorry, the trouble is when you're stressed out, that amygdala hijacks your prefrontal cortex. But when you mm. practice meditation, it does the opposite. So it deactivates the amygdala and fires up the prefrontal cortex. And also the hippocampus, which is all about memory retention, retaining information, storing information. So if you need to you know, study and work and retain information, it fires that up. So that's the, that's the first thing, the science behind that, deactivating that, strengthening that. So you can think better, plan better, problem solve better. Another great byproduct, to be honest, and, and what I hear from a lot of my clients is it helps you sleep better. So if you do a mm. practice through the day, you process your thoughts, you go through those beta, alpha, theta modes, and you process your thoughts. And then when you go to bed at night, you get a clearer night's sleep. A lot of my clients say, oh, my God, Mello, the first time I slept for like eight hours, the first time I've actually um, slept all the way through. That's another great byproduct of, um, of meditation. And then uh, all those other obvious things, creating space between stimulus and response so we can make mindful decisions. If you ask me how it helps me, definitely it helps me with that. Doing more meditation, something stimulates me, something fires me up, something happens. There's a space between that before you respond. Most people just react immediately. And when you meditate more, you create a bigger space. And again, that's what I use in my travels, you know, in those situations, believing that you always have the resources inside of you in that space to make the right decision. Um, that's a, a creating that space there. Well, what else? There's just so many resilience training, obviously, um, just all that neuroscience, also all the systems, you know, all the body systems, as you mentioned before, regulating the nervous system. So we actually typically in fight and flight response, we spend far too long in the sympathetic nervous system. So we're on all the time in that beta mode, beta, 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 thinking, working, working, overstimulated, overwhelmed, all those anxiety feelings. So when we practice that breath work, we can drop into the opposite of the sympathetic, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system. And that activates the rest and digest phase. Instead of fight and flight, it's rest and digest. So all of your body systems can reset. So there's some great. I think that's a really important one, you know, especially yeah. someone myself who's experienced complex PTSD. I've learned a lot about the central nervous system mm -hmm. um, and how it responds to a dangerous or a threatening situation, but also how it responds to a safe situation. And one of the things that I've learned, you know, oftentimes, you know, when we're ex constantly exposed to stressful stimulus or traumatic stimulus, the, 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 the central nervous system itself actually winds up much like the tissues in a muscle and it actually starts to hold on to information. Yeah. You know, and it's store and it doesn't, and this is what I found really interesting. It doesn't metabolize the, the biochemistry of the emotions and those, those, that biochemistry, those neural peptides get trapped in the central nervous system mm -hmm. and they get re-experienced on a regular basis. And, you know, one of the things that I've found with meditation is it literally relaxes the central nervous system yeah. to the point, and this is where I find it really interesting, where information that can sometimes have been trapped in there for a long period of time, and it's even leaking out to the tissues, all of a sudden it starts to get released. Yeah. And it starts to get metabolized, like the biochemistry starts to get metabolized. The, the memories actually are enabled to be stored in long term, but also I've discovered that sometimes releases can be a little bit unusual. Yeah. Because I've had meditations before where all of a sudden I've just burst into tears. Yeah. Yeah. I've had meditations before where I've just started coughing things up. You yeah. know, I've had meditations before where my whole body's gone into a complete, you know, um, almost, let's call it a, 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 a fish on a pavement after being caught. Yeah. 
what is this all about to someone who, to the uninitiated? Because someone might be doing a meditation, all of a sudden they start crying. And go, well, this is no good. I, I didn't meditate because uh, meditation. I don't meditate because it makes me sad. And so, well, no, it's not making you sad. It's just helping you relieve all the, release all yeah. the sadness that you're holding on to. Yeah. How do you explain that to people and help them navigate? Well, it's moving through. It's moving the emotions through the body, isn't it? So we're sitting with it and moving with it, activating that parasympathetic nervous system it's a great thing and i've had exactly the same experience with many of my clients they'll, they'll cry and i'm talking ceos and executives yeah. and you know they're just holding this nervous energy holding this trauma in them for years and years and that's the thing they sit in this chronic stress zone overstimulated overwhelmed all the time they don't sit with their stuff they don't mm. sit with their trauma and they hold it on for for decades even some of them hold on for decades I had one particular CEO that I was working with and um, asking him the questions around, you know, what are your hobbies? What are your interests and things like that? And he'd, he burst into tears. He, he realized, oh my God, it's been 15 years since I've done my hobbies wow. and interests. So caught up in the, in the wheel of life, of the rat wheel of life that he forgot to do his hobbies. So we can have all these traumas stuck in our body. I've, I've had other clients say, you know, migraines lifted like that with a, with a two yep. practice shoulders dropping because we have that inner awareness and we're moving emotion through the body we're moving that sadness that grief that um, anger frustration anxiety through the body through the practice and what would you say to someone who's having a meditation and then all of a sudden they feel an anger or a sadness yeah. or a grief or a shame come up you know would you encourage them to go okay breathe through it and 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 get it out or would you encourage them to feel it and breathe into it and allow their body to experience emotion versus trying to suppress the emotion and push it back down. Yeah. I'll get them to give themselves permission to feel it. Give themselves mm. permission to feel the emotion. It might be the first time they've sat with that emotion for a long yes. time. So emotions have a natural cycle, right? They get triggered, they rise, they peak, and then they dissipate down the other side. But most of us, when it comes to that peak, we don't want to sit with that stuff. We no. push it away. We, I don't want to feel that cry. I don't want to cry. I don't want to have that angry outburst. So when it comes to that peak, they have this little coping mechanism and they sort of turn back and they won't actually access the full emotion. So when, mm. when they sit with themselves, I ask them and give them permission to actually feel the emotion in its fullness, whatever that does to them, whether they cry, whether they uh, you know, have a emotional response it's a great thing actually and and the other thing so i say beautiful. is to gently let's say it's fear and they're, they're feeling that fe emotional fear the other thing i say is to gently turn towards it it's mm. not like it's not like face your fears that's a bit hard you know face your fears yeah. don't get on with it. it's like just gently turn towards it and what responses and sensations does it have in the body and where do you feel it in the body they might feel it in their chest a lot of emotions get stuck there the really interesting thing i work with a lot of psychologists i work on the psych ward and I um, and I see the young psychologists come into the workplace and they're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they're so excited about the world they're going to change and help people within about two years I see them starting to hold their shoulders up high or feel them crouch through their posture or limping or putting on weight because they're starting to take on a lot of these things from their from the patients and they don't know mm. what to do with it it's really interesting how physiologically it affects them from their psychology and they hold these traumas in their body. So you know, that's where the meditation and mindfulness practice can be really powerful just to work through those. And it's so interesting, especially when you look at psychiatry or even dentistry, you know, they have some of the, the two of the highest suicide rates in the world. Yeah. And that, you know, there's a lot of hypotheses, but one of them is they're constantly absorbing almost empathically, you know, a lot of information and, you know, yeah. oftentimes negative trauma-based information that they're not able to, in some cases, uh, metabolize or process or regulate themselves. Mm, and I'm blown away that there's no teachings and mechanisms for them to cope with that. You know, a lot of mm. the industries like that, I also work with uh, some barristers and lawyers and some of them are, are working with murder cases all day long and they're working with heavy-duty cases. And then they're expected just to go home to the dinner table and have a, a normal dinner with their husband, with their wife or whatever, and just process that. And they don't, they don't get any tools or mechanisms to debrief that and to actually yeah. sit with that. So, you know, mindfulness and meditation can be a really good. So tool. important. Yeah, so important to to move it through, to let it go, to process it, to talk but about. But especially, it. and I think we should be talking to the people who you know who are in um, employment where there is high probability of traumatic exposure yes you know paramedics you know and even and i know it sounds weird dentists go people aren't exposed to it. yeah people dentists are exposed to a lot of trauma every day because it's yeah. one of people's biggest fears you know is going to the dentist you know psychiatrists 
um, you know, anyone who's in a, a field where they're being exposed to either, you know, traumatic releases or emotions or trauma or, you know, even physical trauma. Yes. But one of the, I guess, less talked about, or actually, no, it probably is talked about a lot. I hear it a lot is I have people say to me, oh, okay, when I try to meditate and every time I try to meditate, I fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, it's usually a sign they're exhausted, basically, yeah. and, and, and they're not getting those renewal breaks we we're talking about before. And they're not renewing yeah. their energy on a daily basis. Most people go from beta, 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 which is that you know forty hertz zone of thinking, planning, problem solving, to crash, delta, asleep, exhausted, and they associate slow breathing with falling asleep. So, and that's a, a common thing that happens. A lot of my clients first up, they. They crash out on me. They fall asleep. They start snoring because it's usually a sign that they're, they're exhausted. They're tired. They're running on you know, low resources. But after a while, you'll get through that. You'll, get, you'll actually learn to re-energize yourself through your breath, breath work. So, you know, people are just tired. They're exhausted. They're overst- in this world we're living in now, we're very overstimulated and overwhelmed. Mm. And when I hear the word overwhelmed, and I hear it a lot in the work that I do in the corporate space, it's usually a sign they're not coping. It's usually a sign they're struggling. It's a bit of an orange flag for me. And they're, they're entering that you know, from the chronic stress of being overwhelmed, overstimulated to what's called allostatic stress or allostatic load, where they're just worn out, they're tired, they're exhausted. And that's why they fall asleep because they're just, yeah. they've got no energy left. And, and oftentimes, which is a signal of why they're probably getting bad sleep because they're overtired. And when we're overtired, we don't sleep. And anyone who's had a child knows this, yeah. you know, knows how true this can be. Getting an overtired child to sleep, you know, can be quite traumatic for the whole family. Yes, exactly. Um, how long, you know, because I think one of the things that perhaps may hold some people back is, you know, we live in an age now where we can download an app, we can press a button and we can, in most cases, you know, get the distraction or the benefit that we're looking for. But what I find really interesting is like, if you want to go to the gym, yeah, you know, and you start training today, you're going to be waiting at least, I'm going to say, depending on your age group, demographic and, you know, fitness um, uh, status, you're going to be waiting at least two to six weeks before you start seeing any, what would be called significant gains in performance. Yes. Yeah. What about meditation? How long does it take on average before you actually can start to get noticeable gains? It's similar to a gym setting. That's a good example there because you can get gains immediately. So some people on the very first session that they come with me, they feel the immediate release, the relief. So you can get gains on day one, day two. But typically, it's a bit like the gym. Like when you go to the gym, you start, the first thing you do is you start feeling better, right? You actually start, you don't notice it in the mirror. When you look in the mirror, you start feeling better. So that's the same. You start feeling a bit more energy, you feel a bit more energized, feel a bit of clarity, a bit of focus. So you'll feel it. And then after you know a period, the research is normally around four to six weeks. So it's not the four to six week window where you you'll start noticing it more. You'll start getting those bigger benefits we're talking about, sleeping better. And that's like the gym example. That's when you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing the results. And you probably get other people noticing the results of you. Hey, you're a bit calmer now. I noticed that you're not so fiery. Hey, they start seeing your personality change because they're starting to change your, your behaviors, you're starting to change your patterns, your reactive behavior. So the window is around, you know, to answer that in the shortest way. Immediately, you can actually get immediate results or you know, usually four to six weeks. That's why I run four four week programs, six week yep. programs. I roll a lot of them out in the in the workspace right now. Typically, four weeks is a good window to get started, and then yep. a six to eight week window after that. And I might I might get people after. It's really interesting. I might run a lunch and learn, let's say, at a at a corporate space, and it's a one one off session, one hour. I give them some tools. I give them some techniques to take away, and then months later, someone will come to me. Hey, Mela, you did that lunch and learn at my company. I've got to tell you, actually, you saved my marriage. You saved my my family. I was, wow. uh, and because they took those practices home, yeah. And they and they, you know, whatever it was, I taught them on that day. Maybe they're more present with the kids. Maybe they're more present with their their, their partner. And these practices are cumulative. So they're, they're skills that you learn for the rest of your life. And and that's the beauty of it. You know, mm. getting the immediate result, but it's the longevity that you get, which will even, as you know, the science, you know, talking about the telomeres and things like that, it actually even helps you stay young. That's why I'm 70 years old, but I look all right. Don't I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's interesting in Steve's latest book, um, you know, and and one of the things I love about Kotler is he's very scientific. He, yeah. do, he hates to hypothesize, uh, although I've got him to do it twice. Um <laughs> But he, you know, he's very much about the science and, you know, with, with the research that he's been conducting over the last 30 years, they've discovered that you can actually have a, a significant increase in performance 
in just four days yeah. of meditation. Measurable, sig- statistically significant increases in performance in just four days. And you can't get that when you go to the gym because most of the time you go to the gym day one, by day four, you're fucking, you can't walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whereas with meditation, you know, it's a, it's a completely different scenario. Burnout, you know, is, we've kind of alluded to burnout through, yeah. you know, some of the conversations we've had. We're talking about stress. You know, we haven't mentioned that stress is, you know, probably the biggest killer of this generation. It probably contributes to more uh, truancy and absenteeism than, you know, probably any other condition at large. Um, But again, it's coming back to what we discussed earlier, which is, you know, there's a real strength in calming down. Yes. There's a real strength in being able to turn off. Um, And I guess... From your perspective, and, and again, I, I, I don't want to just sit here and, and share what I know. I want to know what you know. Yeah. What have you found as a, when it comes to burnout, what, what does meditation do or how does meditation negate, you know, the, requ- the requirement? Because I'm sure in your experience, you probably see executives on a fairly regular rotation every six, nine, 12 months, having a period where they're burned out for one to two weeks. Yeah. And that burnout often can, you know, they can be out for one to two weeks, but then there's lost productivity for another one to two weeks after that. How does meditation and mindfulness actually prevent those experiences? Yeah, I I see it as part of the holistic approach in a way. So mindfulness is part of the mental training. So it's part of the, and that's part of our self-care practices. So it really comes back to basic 101 self-care and making sure you're, you're exercising well for your mental health, making sure you're eating well, making sure you're getting all those vitamins and minerals, making sure you're sleeping well. So these are the sort of physical self-care practices. And then it's the, on the mental side, it's the meditation practices, the renewal breaks, and doing some mental stimulation outside of work. And these are, this is what I present often. And what I, what I ask my clients to do is to let's go bring it right back to fundamentals, right back to basic 101 self-care and ask yourself every single day this question, what have I done for me today? What have I done that's just for me? Because typically a busy exec or you know, a busy person will just wake up in the morning, they're on their phone immediately, they're straight into their inbox, they're creating this stress response immediately, they're in a reactive zone and they stay in that reactive zone all day long for you know, hours and hours. They don't do their self-care practices. And that's you know, some good advice I can give you know, your listeners here. Make sure you do something for you every single day. I wake up in the morning, I, I take a morning walk, early in the morning you know, I must have learned years ago about the serotonin production, you know, getting out in the sunlight, getting the, the first light in there. And then approximately 16 hours later, you start producing melatonin. So you fall asleep. Well, so it sets you up for a good sleep. I've been walking every single morning for 25 plus years. It's not negotiable. So it's making these things not negotiable. And then what I do is I anchor other things to that practice. I think, okay, I walk every day anyway. I may as well do my meditation straight after that. So I do a 20-minute meditation practice, sometimes Tai Chi or Qigong, but typically a meditation practice in some way. And then I do a, I have a healthy breakfast. So that's three wins before the day's even started. That's just for me. That fills mm. up my cup. That fills up my resources so I can serve better when I'm running seminars, so I can coach better when I'm working with people. And most people don't do those basic self-care. So meditation is part of that holistic approach to you know, doing all these those 101s. And what I do with my clients is say, let's just choose one. Let's not mm. do all six of these things. Let's, let's just choose one. Let's just say, okay, I'm going to walk every morning for 20 minutes and I'll do a five-minute practice. So then you can anchor other things over time because chances are if you say, make sure you eat well, sleep well, exercise, meditate, and it's just too much. So Too much stuff. It's too much stuff. But let's choose one. We'll do that for the next seven days or the next 14 days or whatever it is. We make a commitment. And then once we've got that one set, we'll anchor another one to that. So that, that's where mm. we can anchor practices. It's good practice anchoring. And I think the value that, and this is where I really try and drive this home, the value of that. You know, because if you can prevent, you know, if you're someone who typically crashes once or twice a year, we're talking about the ability to be able to not only prevent the crash, but optimize the performance around that. Exactly. And um, I think that's critical, especially, you know, if there is a value on performance. And I I do want to kind of um, deframe performance because, you know, we could be talking about performance as a parent. Yeah. You know, we could be talking about performance as a, as a partner, Yeah, you know, we could be talking about performance as an athlete, you know, as a, you know, a military operative. You know, or even as an entrepreneur or an employee, yeah, we're talking about an increase in performance here. I've never done this before, and I have interviewed a few people around these subjects. But would you like to do your ninety-second meditation practice now for our guests? 
Hey, why not? Yeah, if we're up for it. And yeah, let's do it. Unless you're, driving, your- unless you're driving a car right now and listening <laughs> yeah. to this podcast. <laughs> Pull over. <laughs> Pull over, exactly. So, um, yeah, 90 seconds, why not? We'll give a little little uh, a practice here. Let's put our practice into practice. How about that? So, um, yeah, make yourself comfortable wherever you are. Obviously, if you're driving your car, pull over and uh, sit in your seat there and make yourself comfy and uh, wriggle yourself into a comfortable shape. Let your shoulders drop down. Let your feet be on the ground. Let your bum be on the seat and just feel grounded in your body. And the first thing we're going to do is just gently close the eyes off and feel comfortable to do that. If you don't feel comfortable to close your eyes, just empty your gaze and look 45 degrees towards the floor. First thing we do is notice our body. How does our body feel right now? Is it tired? Is it stressed? Is there any tension anywhere? Just feeling your body as a whole. And make any movements or changes. You might want to roll the shoulders or wriggle your neck from side by side or wriggle your jaw if that makes you feel comfortable, just to relieve a bit of stress through the body and tension. But just being aware of your body, your body as a whole, your feet on the ground, back against the chair, shoulders sinking down, hands resting exactly where they want to rest. There's no fight at all. Second thing we'll do is notice our breath. What's our breath doing right now? We're not changing it just yet. We're just noticing it. Noticing it around the nostrils, around the throat, around the chest, around the belly. Just noticing the movement of the breath through the body. And in a moment, we're going to change the rhythm of our breath. We're going to make an intentional change, but just first of all, noticing it. What's the breath doing? Is it tight? Is it shallow? Is it sharp? Is it fast? Is it jagged? And now together, we're going to take an intentional breath. Whenever you're ready, taking a nice deep inhale in through the nose, taking in that extra energy into your body, into your brain, into your blood, and then a really slow exhale, as slow as you possibly can. Take it all the way to the end. And then the next inhale will come in naturally, taking that breath into you, knowing that every in-breath is energy and vitality coming into the body, into the brain. And every out-breath is a slow release, releasing, letting go, letting go of stress, tension, fatigue, or anything. And just keep doing that yourself at your own pace. Nice deep inhales, energizing. Slow releasing exhales, as slow as you possibly can, initiating that relaxation response, feeling your shoulders sink down. And just keep doing that at your own rhythm. By now, you've probably found your own rhythm. And rest your awareness now personally on where you feel the breath the most. Is it around the nostrils, the throat, the chest, or the belly? And that's all you need to do for the next 20 seconds or so. Rest your awareness on your breath. Nothing else matters now but our breath. This is your time for yourself to reset, refocus, to relax, feeling your shoulders sink down, feeling your face relax, feeling your feet on the ground. And taking your time just to do one more full round of breath at your own pace, in and out is one round. And feeling the effect of that last release of that out breath. And then whenever you're ready, just gently in your own time, wriggling the fingers, wriggling the toes, rolling the shoulders, or do whatever you feel, just to gently leave the practice and knowing that you have this quiet place inside of you all the time to access, to find. It's always there in your body and breath. Whenever you're ready, take your time gently leaving the practice by opening the eyes and blinking them a few times to take in the light. I know many of you probably want to stay there. It feels so good. (laughs) But taking your time to exit the practice. What a beautiful way for us to finish. That was superb. Absolutely superb. Thank you, Mellow. Mellow by name, Mellow by (laughs) nature. Mellow, where can people find out more about you, what you do? 
Sure. Probably my easiest access point is through my website, um, yep. com. You can probably pop that in the show we'll notes. Put a link. Yeah. Yep. Instead of me spilling it out. Or LinkedIn. People usually connect me on LinkedIn. is easy. And most of those other social media profiles, I'm not super active on them, but LinkedIn and um, my website probably the the best place to find me and uh yeah give me a call email me you're not on instagram facebook or i am on instagram channels? yeah yep. I'm, I'm spasmodic okay. i'm on spasmodic on them but um uh, just to put some things out there have a bit of fun on them um but i'm not religiously i don't have a you know week by week marketing things but yeah instagram facebook linkedin linkedin and my, and my and website. website yeah fantastic yeah. and is, what about a book have we have, have you written one or is it's there coming. one coming yeah it's coming it's on its way definitely from all my experiences on the road there definitely it's uh it's on its way it's um it's in the it's in the pipelines i've got some drafts going on and everybody says you've got to write a book Mello. you've got to write a book and it, it's coming <laughs> it's coming so keep your eyes peeled on that beautiful and last but not least the best piece of advice you've ever received or ever given Oh wow, that's a good one. That's a that's just the best piece of advice. I think just be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. It, it's been advice for me, being true, just being honest and and being integral. That's um advice that I sit with and 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 always work with. Don't pretend to be somebody else. Just be yourself. Be true to yourself. Mm-hmm. There you go. Love it. Ladies and gentlemen, Milo, Melo Kalako oh, will drop his website in the notes below as well as links to all of his social media profiles. And uh, this, ladies and gentlemen, has been a very mellow episode <laughs> of Unstoppable. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com